Um, so thank you everybody for joining us uh, at different times in the world. Uh, today, um, I wanted to have a conversation with Will Mitchell, who I'll introduce in a second, but I figured I would introduce myself first. Um, I'm Elena Vidal, as, you, uh, as I already mentioned, and I am a, an assistant professor at Baruch College. Um, I recently got promoted to associate, so in about a month, I'll say something different, but for now, it's just assistant. Thank you for the clapping. Um, and um, I am actually one of uh, students, uh, I, I'm, I'm a former student of Will's, I'm currently a co-author of Will's, and uh, that's how I ended up getting this gig, also because I'm in the SDR executive committee. So um, without further ado, I think we're all here to have a conversation with Will, not to know who I am. So we'll get started and uh, we figured with Will, we will just keep it informal and uh, we would just start with, uh, this is Will Mitchell and he is a professor uh, at Toronto. So uh, Will, do you wanna tell us a little bit about, uh, about yourself? Okay, yay, thank you. And uh, yeah, Elena, former student, uh, co-author and then most importantly, friend, uh, thank you so much. Um, to all, and, and thank you to SDR, uh, Seem, uh, Samina, everybody involved in this. Um, you folks are, are just doing an amazing job at, at, raise, at, at it's, part, it's funny because it's partly a service to the community to engage us all. It's partly raising the profile of STR to really establish it as an institution. Um, and it's just, um, I, I really can't say overstate how, how valuable this is. Um, we're just, we're so much more connected now than we were a year ago. Um, and, you know, and, and the pandemic is awful. I mean, there's no other word to describe it other than maybe some worse words than that. Uh, but it's forcing us to do some things and creating incentives to do things that um, I guess are the, the, the little bit of shining light in the midst of all the clouds of the pandemic. So, so thank you for, for shining those lights. Um, I'm a faculty member at Toronto. I'm also uh, a, a affiliated position at uh, Duke University Med School. Um, I've been on the faculty here. I've been on the faculty at Duke. I've been on the faculty at the University of Michigan. I, a bunch of years ago, I started my PhD at the University of California at Berkeley. I think I'm in the 38th year of my PhD program at this point. Um, and um, I do a bunch of research and teaching and service and that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, I could go into detail, but, but why don't you just ask anything you're interested in asking about? Um, so to make it, the idea I think is also to get to know you a little bit better as a person. So uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in, a, in, in an area of British Columbia called the West Kootenays. Um, the, main, the main town in that area is a town called Trail, and main town means it has 6,000 people. Um, my, my village had 1,500 people. Um, I went to school there and then I worked in the uh, sawmills for a while. I worked in the forest, worked for the forest service for a while, I worked in lead smelter for a while and decided that maybe uh, working seven days, two off, seven afternoons, two off, seven graveyard, three off, and not knowing, never knowing what time it was. Um, maybe, maybe it wanted to go to school after all. So I went to Vancouver to go to school. Um, interesting, because I, I think based on my recollections as a PhD student with you, you were traveling so much that probably you still do a lot of graveyards without knowing it. You're just in Singapore and it's daytime there. Yeah, but I get to choose them. Good point. Um, so how did you decide to go from, you know, from that path into what pushed you into a PhD program? I was working um, in some community organizations and got angry at work, um, decided I'd go back to school to get some more skills and had the good fortune to go to a school, Simon Fraser, that had research active faculty and no MBA, pro no full-time MBA program. So the research active faculty were teaching in the undergraduate program. 
and I started talking to a few of my professors and it was like this light bulb going off. Well, you know, you, I can, you know, somebody, you can do that and you can get paid for it. Um, you know, you, you get to ask the questions rather than somebody else asking the questions and you, you know, um, and it was, it was just, um, it was, it was really stunning seeing what people were doing and, and, and what the opportunities were. So, um, so I stayed, went back to school and just never left. Interesting. Cause I feel like that was similar to the path that I took. Like we had some research active faculty in, in, in my undergraduate program. And that's how I became fascinated. I was like, Oh, I didn't even know you could do a PhD in business or, um, so that's, that's, that's really cool. So what were, what was your PhD like? Um, fast and furious and varied. I started out thinking I was going to study worker co-ops because that's where I've been working. Discovered there were more people studying worker co-ops than there were doing worker co-ops, which is not a good balance. Um, was working on a, an RA ship with Susan Foote on, on medical, on, on medical, on, on medical equipment. Discovered this really cool world of medical imaging. Um, was working, hanging out with David Teese and Ollie Williamson and um, and Dick Nelson and Sid Winter and others and discovered that and, and John Freeman and and um, um, and others in, in uh, Glenn Carroll and others in ecology and discovered there's this really interesting mix on the one hand of empirical stuff going on with medical imaging which is just really cool um, and on the other hand theory stuff with some combination of transaction cost economics evolutionary economics and ecological theory um, and I realized missing you know combining um, theories of adaptation with theories of no change um, was, is kind of weird and odd, but it sort of worked. Um, and just had a really, and, and just sort of fell into this, it was just this really rich environment, uh, both empirically because um, it was this, one of the centers of the world for, for uh, uh, science and medical imaging with MRI, and the, especially with MRI. Um, and, uh, and it was also one of the center of the, center of the world for, for, you know, for cool theory. And you know, it was able to put the two things together and come up with something that was kind of weird. But weird. Um, so I know that there's some early studies. Oh, somebody has a question? Oh, uh, so following up on that, I know that there's some, uh, some early stage doctoral students in the, in, in, in the meeting. And um, I'm sure they would love to know, how did you pick your dissertation topic? Complete and total randomness and serendipity. Um, I, I was working with Susan. She was studying as an RA. She was studying regulation of medical imaging. I discovered this cool technology. Um, Ollie Williamson was sort of floating through the place, and, and David Teese was there full time when he was there. And uh, so there was some ideas around transaction costs. And I'll, you know, maybe I can put transaction costs together with medical imaging and see what I can get with it. Um, and spent two years putting up data and, and four years figuring out the theory and sort of got there. I remember you saying that uh, by then you still had to use punch cards to go to the library to be able to run things, right? No, I was post punch cards. Oh, okay. Um, I ne I've never actually used a punch card. I, Simon Fraser was a small university, so it adopted um, batch processing early. Um, and so uh, actually I've never had to use a punch card. Um, but I, I did start out, I started out thinking I could recorded as on a piece of paper, you know, these big synoptic uh, uh, accounting spreads, pieces of paper, like I don't know, 17 by 11 or something like that. And I thought I could record all the concepts and data on that and quickly discovered that was wrong. Um, so I started using some early um, main, uh, mainframe spreadsheets, sort of spreadsheet, sortable things, um, which 
and Elena, you've had the misfortune of trying to work with that data, so you know how messy it was. Yeah, it was very messy, but it was it was during my first year of the PhD program, and it was fascinating to see the value that was in that data. In the data, so it was it was a really cool exercise as a first year doc student. Yeah, I mean, I won't pretend it was thought out. Um, it was just it, it was a initially it was a data dump. Um, just put a whole bunch of stuff together and see what patterns I could get out of it. But then eventually it got a little bit more disciplined, disciplined in terms of theory. Um, and I started off thinking it was transaction cost theory and then eventually discovered it was evolutionary theory. But um, that was okay. So if you had to give some type of advice to doctoral students at the early stage, since we're talking about your dissertation, what, do, what would that advice be? Start early. Um, just... Um, I don't know, some sort of sequential commitment. Um, you know, get an idea, build on it, um, change it if you need to, but only if you need to. Um, have fun with it, own it. Um, so I was talking, we were talking this morning when we kicked off, something I, I wish I'd done this a long time ago. I, I, a couple of years ago, I started doing um, gaps tables for, the work, for, for my work, where I write down the concepts I was working with and what the people and, the, and what the people who are working with those concepts had concluded about them, you know, in the context in which I was studying, and then do a second column in the table that where I write down what they don't know, you know, where the gaps are, and then a third column where I sort of eventually figure out what my hypo how my hypotheses or my research questions, depending which way I'm going, um, are going to help fill the gaps, and that's helped give me some discipline because it means I'm not all over the place because there's only so much you can put in one table, and. Um, because I, I know many of you, some of you at least have heard me say this before, that, you know, you've got a combination, there's a three-part combination, and this is true of any paper, and it's certainly true of a dissertation, in that you have an audience, you have a research question, and you have a set of methods, and, you know, a research, and it has to be a research question that is interesting to the audience, and it has to be a set of methods that provide an answer that meet the norms of reliability for that audience. So I guess the starting point really is knowing who the audience is. Um, and then making sure your question fits that audience and if it doesn't find another audience and making sure your methods fit that audience and, and if they don't find different either different different methods or different audience. You know, because, you know, I mean, in simple examples, if I, if I, you know, if you send a paper that's not identified to management science, you might as well send the rejection letter along with it. Because it'll save everybody a lot of time. Whereas if you send a paper that starts off with, let me tell you about my identification strategy to ASQ, you might as well send the, re the, the rejection letter along with that because they don't care nearly as much. Um, and so start with the audience. And, and, and for me, audience is people, right? It's not the, you know, ecological theory or transaction cost theory. It's, um, you know, it's, it's the specific individuals within that, within that area. So to follow up with that, um, I, I know that you did a lot of work with your dissertation. Uh, how many papers did you publish out of that? I remember having this conversation in our first year doctoral seminar. Yeah, it was a bunch. I've lost track. Um, I mean, I have to admit, I ran out, of, ran out of patience with it before I ran out of potential papers. There's still probably a few potential papers sitting in the data because it was so messy. And, and as a result, there's so much there. I mean, it, basically, in some sense, it started off with two core papers um, that were in my dissertation. And I thought they, and I wrote them both as papers in the dissertation. Um, and then they ended up being totally, I mean, I submitted both of them, one to SQ and one to SMJ. And they eventually got published, but boy, they were, um, you know, as a result of the review process. 
and I got fortunate in having both good reviewers and thoughtful editors. Um, you know, reviewers who are willing to be obnoxious. You know, one anonymous reviewer named um, named Marvin Lieberman, um, um, who were both obnoxious is the wrong word, particularly in Marvin's case. Um, who are willing to be really demanding, but at the same time open-minded. You know, taking it and taking my, you know, taking it from my perspective rather than theirs, and telling me what was, you know, why I wasn't accomplishing what I thought I was accomplishing, and but then giving me the space to do that, and then having um, editors in one case Dan Schendel, in the other case John Freeman, um, who weren't taking votes, but were, you know, working with me and the reviewers to help me get someplace. Um, and that I have to admit that. That's one of the biggest messages in my life, and I've tried to carry that. My my professional life is, is I've tried to carry that through with the editing work I've done. That editors need to be developmental and and definitely not count votes, and reviewers need to take um, an author's point of view. They need to be tough-minded and push you really, really hard to do what you want to do. But but it's not a reviewer's job to say, um, if I were doing this paper, this is what I would, and this is how I would study it. It's a reviewer's job to say, you've told me what you 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 sort of told me what the question is. Tighten that up, and let's make sure that you know that you're accomplishing it. Um, and I mean, I've edited, I've edited and reviewed a lot now for for a long time, and I've tried, you know, that those first two papers really really drove that home to me, and I've tried to try to take that to heart in my own work. Um, so, uh, how how the how has that? So from there, how how did that influence your tra your trajectory for publishing future research? Um, I think both papers made me get the theory right, um, or writer at least. And I went into it. Um, some of you heard me heard me made the distinction between red state and, and blue state. Um, I went into it as sort of a proto red state scholar who sort of took theory seriously, but mainly cared about the empirics. And the review process made me take the theory seriously as well. And in one case, it was a blue state paper. The SQ paper was a blue state paper. Was, you know, here's transaction costs. Let's use this, this, this cool stuff from um, medical imaging to help us um, learn something more about transaction cost theory. At least I thought it was. Um, I realize now, actually, the words I was using for transaction costs were actually much more evolutionary theory. And if I was to describe it now, it would be a blue state paper about evolutionary theory informed by um, ecology and transaction costs rather than transaction costs informed by ecology and evolutionary. But in, but in, but in any case, it, even though, it, but it made me take the theory a lot more seriously. And then the SMJ paper was a red state paper, started out mainly empirical, but it made me understand how even an empirical paper has to be framed in terms of theory, right? If I'm trying to fill a hole in an empirical, in, a, in, in an empirical gap, um, in that case around entry timing, um, it's not very effective to do it just as an empirical story without with a really thoughtful framing from theory. So whether it's whether I care about the empirics first or the theory first, you've got to have theory. And in my point of view, from my point, my 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 approach to things, anyways, if you care about theory first, I think it's better if you have data as well. Um, so that those two papers took a long, took a fair while. Um, I got you know got fortunate in them, and it really helped me see why every paper really needs a, an incredibly strong mix of theory and data, whether it's led with one or led with the other. Yeah, I think I think even to this day, I still I remember having this conversation in my first year doctoral program about I don't know a long time ago, fourteen years ago, um, but it still seems 
that every time I start a new paper, I try to think about it in, in, in those terms. Is it a blue state paper or a red state paper? Um, so it does, it does help. Um, if you had to name one contribution that you've done to the field or to research, not to the field, because we'll talk a little bit more about that next, but to research, what would, what would your main contribution be? Um, the list of names that Richard put in the chat box, plus all the <laughs> others. Um, Many others, probably. Yeah, I, I, I've been on about 70 dissertation committees at this point, about half of, maybe 40, 35 or 40 of those is chair or co-chair, and the other half is the other is committee members. Um, that's far and away the work that matters. Um, you know, working with people, getting personal benefit out of it, um, helping, seeing, seeing how ideas that I would never have thought of develop. Um, that's, that's the valuable part. So you've been in over 70 dissertations? Yeah. And I think many more, I think one of the things that I remember most, in, or that it was interesting to me as a first year doctoral student or a second year going to conferences was seeing you interacting with the doctoral students. And even during social opportunities, it was, it was always about, like you always had a time to uh, dedicate to the doctoral students. Even, I remember you used to drive with us sometimes to conferences. If they were in DC, you would take a drive with us. And um, mm -hmm. I remember it was like 9 p.m. We had been driving for four hours and Will would be asking us question like, okay, so uh, what would be the first sentence of your dissertation? And you know, you're driving in the middle of the highway and you're tired and you're having to think about these things. But um, it was always, it was always int an interesting exercise. So, um, so I, I as a, in a very biased way, I also agree that that has been uh, one of your uh, a great contribution that you've done. Just being there for uh, the the following generations, some of which are a lot. A lot of us, I think, are here. Um, mm. Well, Shashu, you have to put up with it. Yeah, um, and Samina, you have to put up with it. <laughs> it's. Um, I mean, it's. You know, it's. It's a way of creating, uh, actually at heart, it's a way of creating really strong friendship. Um, and people that you know personally, you know intellectually, um, to, and, and people who've accomplished things that I could never even have begun to begin ima imagine accomplishing. It's just, it's really cool. And I think you've cast a network of uh, academic siblings that I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been an interesting, an interesting, way of thinking about it. I never thought academia would be this way, but uh, there's been some type of brotherhood or sisterhood with people that, you know, you're, you're, um, you know, you, you share experiences with. I think we were talking with Tamina about this in, in a different setup, uh, how, you know, we had similar experiences just because you were both of our advisors, like, you know, having a five hour long meeting and not really thinking about like, I need to use the bathroom and not being able to go. So, uh, so, um, yeah, Laurent, Laurence claims that, that she always brought a large suitcase to the airport in case I showed up with my motorcycle and to give her a ride home. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, 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 you're, you're, you're quite the character and I think it, it's allowed us to share some of those experiences with, with each other. Um, I just, just to, before we transition to more on the, on the career, on the career side, in terms of research, um, do you see any unanswered questions that doctoral students or junior faculty should be thinking about? I what mean, do you think are the big questions? Whatever you find, you know, whatever you find interesting and convince somebody else. Interesting, big question, bigness and interestingness are endogenous, right? Um, I don't think there's some sort of latent pool of interesting questions out there or big questions out there. 
I think there are questions that we convince our colleagues and the profession and 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 broader set of stakeholders in the practicing community as well that they're big. Um, and so the res I actually think the responsibility for making something big is ours. You know, if we see a question that we think is intriguing and can convince somebody that that's our job to convince you know a relevant audience that it matters and that's what makes it big you know and and obviously right now there's you know think about you know, the, the the number of questions that have been surfaced because of some combination of covid um racial you know racial racial concerns about racial inequality um concerns about about globalization and the attacks that are happening on globalization, um, the, the moving forward and moving backwards in market-based economies and political openness. Um, and it's really, and just on that last one, it's really interesting. And we see all the backward movement in places like the US and Hungary and Poland and Israel. And at the same time, there's other countries that are moving forward. Uh, in fact, if you use them both in market base, both in, 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 in terms of their market base and in terms of political openness. Um, and so we're actually in a really interesting period with, with things going both forwards and backwards in different countries over different times. Um, so are there questions, are, are, you know, in that myth of racial inequality, um, globalization and pa pandemics and all the stuff that's associated with the supply chains and so forth that are associated with, with, with that, um, are there big questions in there? There's more big questions than we can possibly stir. You know, so it's basically our job as scholars to pick one and convince the world that this is the one that this is one of the ones that we should be paying attention to right now. Yeah, and I think that reminds me of, of trying to figure out like path, papers or like path to my dissertation and what the contribution should be. And um, you know, drop. I, I remember you pushing us really a lot to think beyond what was having or what had been done in the literature and saying like, well, no one's done this or. Uh, Papers haven't really looked at this particular thing and really thinking beyond that, like, okay, so no one's done it, but beyond, why is this interesting and why is this important? And us not knowing this should fill some type of gap other than, yeah, that's, you know, no one's done it, but that doesn't mean that it's interesting or important or relevant to, to research. Yeah, the why, but even more the who, right? Who would that be interesting to? And you know, some of you have heard me make the analogy of standing on top of a, you know, a lot of the times I have fallen into the trap of standing on top of a, of a mountain with a, with a megaphone and yelling and hoping that somebody will hear me. Um, and discovering that in fact, I'm sta standing on top of a molehill inside a canyon and I'm yelling and it's bouncing off the walls and you know, I can't even hear it because it's echoing. Um, it needs to be a quiet conversation, right? It's, it's sitting in a seminar table with the four or five people around at the table who you think are, are most central to it. And um, some of them may be live, some of them may be dead, some of them may be brain dead, but, they're, um, but they're the people who, ideally a mix of, of, of at least two of those, right? Some, some, stout, some iconic people um, like an Edith Penrose or an Ollie, Ollie Williamson or whoever, um, and some people working at the frontier of the field and having four or five of those people sitting at the, imagine having four or five of those people sitting at the conference table with you and explaining why they should take it seriously. And, 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 yeah, and, I think and, and if I can, and I will say for myself, if I, where I failed, it's when I typically it starts with I don't know who specifically should be sitting at that table and why they should be there together. Yeah, and I think even even at seminars, I remember you even asking the question of like, why is this important to the speaker and, and like almost ca ca catching them off guard. And I think it's a it's a very important question to and and, and yeah, I mean thinking about who your audience is. Um, 
So in that line, I mean, I, it seems like that would be great advice for junior scholars. But do you have any other any other advice along along those lines that 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 would carry weight for people like me and yeah. like Xiao Shu and others that are starting our careers? Yeah, I mean, first off, I think we're all junior scholars. Um, as I long like as, as as long as we continue to be scholars, we're junior scholars, right? Because scholarship is surfacing new ideas and helping people understand why they're important and exploring the, bound, the boundaries of that. And if we fall into the trap, whether you know whether we're one year out or 40 years out of just doing the same thing over and over again, uh, we're no longer scholars. Um, so we're all junior scholars. Um, and that really constant, means constantly knowing what the question is, knowing who the people are that care about the question, knowing what they already believe about the question, know, knowing what they, they don't know about the question, and will agree that they don't know about the question, and then figuring out something I can say that we can, each of us can say that will help that audience come to a new understanding. And it may be a light bulb going off, oh, boy, I didn't, didn't know I didn't know that, or it may be something where they already know that there's uh, a gap and we're gonna fill it. But, um, but that's our job as scholars. You know, it's the, the question, the, the, the audience, knowing the literature well enough to know what they know, knowing the literature even better to know what they don't know, being able to convince um, some smart, arrogant people that they don't know something. And none of us in this room are arrogant, but we all have colleagues, we have all once or once or twice in our careers bumped into a colleague who is, um, and they're usually our reviewers. Um, and so we have to know the literature well enough and be able to articulate it well enough to help them say, when we say, this is a field that you've been engaged in and here's something you don't know that they'll agree with that. And then getting something focused and crisp that we can say, here's, here's an important contribution to, to the body of knowledge that you're part of. And that's scary, right? Because it's essentially taking our clothes off, right? And we, we make our, you know, we're making our intellect naked, taking our hat off at least. Um, and uh, and putting our ideas out there, you know, on the table, in the air, um, on paper, electronically, um, and saying, this is what I think, and you should care about it. And that's scary. Uh, because, you know, we're, we're really, every, every single paper, every, in every single presentation is taking a risk. Who gets, who, who, who still gets scared uh, when, you, when, when you're gonna do a presentation? Right? I mean, and, and you should be, right? This is like acting. You should throw up before you go on stage. And because it matters, right? And, it should, and it's got to matter in your gut um, if, it's worth, if it's worth standing up and talking about it, whether you're. Um, and so it's, and, and I, I, Elaine, I know you've heard this, Shoshu, Samin, I know you've both heard this. Um, it's like doing a present, you know, how you do a paper and then you do a presentation based on the paper and you go into the paper and you realize that the logic that you thought was in the paper or you just assumed was in the paper isn't there. And you're starting to put it on some slides and you discover that, you know, you've jumped from A to C without going through B. And if once you go through B, you discover that A doesn't connect to C in the way you thought it did. That sound familiar to anybody? And when you do a presentation, it shows up because you only got a few slides um, and it's hard to lie or it's hard to hide it in a bunch of words. Um, and that's, I mean, that's the, obviously that's the value of doing presentations, right? Is to, to figure that out and then go back in and change the paper so that A goes to B goes to C prime. Um, and, but so, I mean, and think, 
in a real sense, that's one of the glories of our field, right? That we can stand up in front of an audience and tell them what we think and try to convince them that what we think matters to them as opposed to a consulting job or a business executive job where for the most part you're doing what somebody you're, you're filling in holes in what somebody else thinks we get to ask the questions consultants don't business executives don't for the most part even ceos are amazingly constrained um, but by the same time that gives us the responsibility to make sure that what we think is logical You know, and sometimes, you know, and, you know, right now, in some cases, it's really obvious how, how risky that is, you know, think about COVID um, and think about people like, you know, like, like Tony Fauci, who is doing a good job of saying what he thinks and is getting death threats. You know, most of us are not in that, that situation, but we could be. You know, who knows whether what we're working on might turn out to just by happen chance to be central to a globalization de debate. I mean, how many of us can imagine doing a piece of research that said something really relevant to the current debates around globalization? And how many of us could imagine having somebody pick up on that and hate it? Um, and so in the beginning, it means A, just be right, or as right as we possibly can. Um, I don't know about the death threat part of it. So on that note, I think it, it's one of the things that, you know, we're, we're always focused about our research, but I think one thing that, you know, for, for that to happen, for our work to be relevant to others, um, it would have to be read by others. So how do you make that transition between your papers in academia to actually getting to the industry? Because I know you have a lot of industry yeah. connections and a lot of you know, you have a foothold in that area. So I think that's also important. How did you get to that point? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, I would argue that most of our communication, whether it's in academics or outside academics, is not through the written word, right? Um, by the time that something gets published, we've presented it multiple times at our schools and conferences and seminars and workshops. Um, and the people who are most central to it and the people who are sort of going to pick up on the ideas and use the ideas already know them by the time it gets, by the time it gets published. And, and the paper in many ways is just kind of an imprimatur, uh, is setting a stamp on the fact that we sort of reached a point where what we've said, you know, what we've been saying for the last, we're, we're talking the beginning nine years, you know, one, you know, papers can sometimes take, as, you, as, as some of us know, can take nine years uh, or more. Um, Elena, um, you and I have taken a long time on some of our work. Samina, you and I have taken a long time on some of our work. Um, Olga Hahn, who came, was, was Olga Voranina when she came in with you, uh, is now Olga Hahn. Um, we started working on a project on the Dow Jones, uh, 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 Dow Jones- uh, uh, Sustainability Index. Sustainability Index. And um, in, I think it was the first year of her PhD program. And I thought it was maybe gonna help her get her second year paper, and then I thought it was maybe going to help her get a job, and then I thought it maybe maybe would help her get promoted to, to her first promotion, and now I think it's going to help her get tenure, um, because that's how long it took. Literally, um, so by but by the time it gets published, the people who care about it have already read it, or you already heard it, and the same thing's true actually with um, with 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 the work I do with uh, with B's and C's with with business executives and consultants. For the most part, they don't read my stuff. 
you know, and I do publish some some things in the applied press, um, you know, in HMPI and, and HBR and, and, the, and the like. And some of that has an impact. But for the most part, it's making connections with people and talking with them. Right. So, I mean, I know people, some of the consulting companies, and we talk about things and I learn from them and they learn a little bit from me. And it's, you know, maybe some of it shows up in writing, but that's actually more of an outcome than a, than, than a cause. Or I just had a call, a call this morning with some friends, um, with somebody I know well um, in, uh, in another country um, about a, a possible commercialization exercise. And that started as using value chain integration as sort of the frame for, for developing the strategy. And that started as a conversation. Then it went to reading the work I've done on value chain integration. And then it came back to the conversation because they, the, the work that I'd written on, on BCI really gave some words, which is important, but it didn't, doesn't fully give the logic. Because, the log, you know, because every individual strategy is solving a particular problem. And whereas a piece of research is establishing a general pattern. And so it, it gave us some words, but the conversation we're having this morning was much more around how do we make this work in this particular context? And so whether it's an academic setting or whether it's a practical setting or you know, a VC setting or policy setting, I think it comes down to establishing relationships. And some of those come through our, through our students, right? I mean, we have the amazing good fortune to be teaching at schools where people go off and work. And so each of us from the very beginnings of our careers are creating networks with initially dozens and eventually hundreds and thousands, literally, of people who are in business positions or in policy positions are in, there's 200 countries in the world, they're probably in 199 of them. Um, there must be some, you know, the, I suspect that each of us has a country where we don't have a connection, but, but uh, a, first, a, a first, first order connection or a second order connection, but that's about it. Um, and so it's the personal relationships that we build with people that, that, uh, that do that. I mean, this, the, in fact, this, this problem, the, the, the VCI example I had this morning, um, that relationship started off with a term paper that somebody wrote in one of my classes. Uh, about some ideas he had for his family business about how to expand it. And, and over the years, um, you know, I've developed a really close relationship with him, with his brother, with his father, um, with other people in the business. And, um, you know, and those ideas have, you know, be, have, have, you know, have, have, have developed. But again, it's all, it's built on relationships. So what do you think would be the, changing gears a little bit, what, what have been the biggest challenges in your career? Time, lack thereof, right? There's three things that matter in life, family, health, and time. Everything else is fungible. Um, I've had the good fortune to have an incredibly supportive family. Um, I've had the good fortune to keep my health most of the time. Um, so time, um, you know, it's pretty brought home to me right now. I'm, I'm running two MBA programs in the middle of a, a, middle of a pandemic. Uh, and so everything we knew or much of what we knew has gone out of the window. Um, you know, so trying to make sure that there's time to do that so that the students get what they need and my colleagues get what they need and I get what I need, need for the research um, can be a pain in the ass. But uh, I'm not, but, but having said that, I'm not complaining. Um, so what would be the, the opposite of that? What have been some of your biggest triumphs, if you think, throughout your career? Uh, I'll just come back to the list of students. You know, the opportunities to work with really interesting people and see every single one of them do really interesting things. 
Um, I, it's it's funny how you mentioned, you know, that the biggest constraint have, has been time because you are so generous with your time. I think I remember as a doctoral student that we would have, you know, eight hour long meetings just on my research. And, and it's just amazing how, how you managed, you, you would fit that into that time constraint. Yeah, I mean, I can't do this as much as I used to, but Warren Zevon has a song that goes sleep when I'm dead. Um, it's now Warren died young. Um, so there are some problems with that. Um, um, it just, it, a lot of it boils down to figure out what matters and spend the time on the things that matter and get rid of the things that don't. You know how Willie has that, Willie Ocasio has the attention-based, uh, you know, theory of, of management. Um, there's this, you know, limited number of things you can pay attention to, pick the ones that matter to you and, and do them. Um, and, and just don't do the stuff that doesn't matter. So the, uh, one of the one of the things that you mentioned is that you have there's three things family health and uh, and time, but uh, within those three things I think it's 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 important to also have some type of I think family is really important I know family matters a lot to you um, and 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 you and just on on, on the family or the non work side uh, what are your main hobbies I think I know one of them. Yeah, somebody asked me that question about six months ago and I thought for a moment I realized it's it's putting up weird data sets. I, I have several dozen data sets that I maintain, longitudinal data sets that I maintain, um, you know, in bankruptcies and acquisitions and pharma and med tech and health IT and the like, um, and an auto. Um, and if, if I can't, if I'm just brain dead and I can't do anything else, I'll just sit down at three screens and, you know, update a data set. Um, and I, some of them I get to use for research, some of them I get to use for teaching, some of them I just get to, I just get to look at because they're cool, you know, when, because when, they're cool and see the patterns emerge over time. Um, uh, but that, that's just a really, I, I don't know, I just find it a really comforting activity. Um, so the one that I was thinking about was uh, guitars. I know you have a, a little bit of a collection of guitars. Or you used to at least. Oh, I still do. I still do. Um, I brought two. I brought two more home yesterday. Um, I went out to British Columbia. To, to, I went out to empty my mother's house in in, in BC, and, and there were three of my guitars were there plus one amplifier. Uh, I managed to, to leave one guitar behind, which I gave to my my, my nephew. Um, but so I now have you know two two more guitars and, and one more amplifier in the basement. Uh, can we ask how many guitars you have, or is uh, that I, not? I don't. I don't, <laughs> don't want to say. Um, so uh, some of you know uh, I, I'm married to a musician too. So we have—he's uh, a drummer. So unfortunately, guitars would be a much more concise thing to carry around. Uh, we have about two or three drum kits just sitting in storage for someday. And drum kits, of course, can explode because you can keep adding one more thing to them. Yeah, I don't know how many uh, symbols we have lying around. Right. Uh, we even have a symbol as a clock in our kitchen. Um, oh, I love so. it. Um, so, um, I, I fully get it. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's so easy to collect. I mean, every time he's like, oh, there's this big sale on this new kit. And I'm like, where are we going to put it? We already don't have, we live in a tiny New York city apartment. You can probably hear my daughter in the other room screaming. Um, like, so. I, like, I will say, I really like, I, we were talking earlier. I really like hearing kids on these calls. Um, it's I mean, a, cause kids are fun and B it's a really good reminder that we're human. Um, so it's, 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 it's actually been one of the pluses of, of all the Zoom calls that we've been doing is just seeing, seeing and hearing and, and uh, family. 
Yeah, she's also starting to learn how to walk, which or stand up rather, uh, which means she's just banging her head on anything that she she stands up and she automatically bangs her head with something. So um, I'm sorry for the for the background noise, but um, no, music, it's part of music is a bit like a data set. Um, you just get so involved in it that you can't think about anything else, right? I mean, if you're trying to work through a melody line or you're you're trying to work through the fingering for something, um, you can't think about anything else. Or it doesn't work. And data sets the same way. If, if you, you, know, you lose traction on sort of how the pieces fit together, it all comes tumbling down. Um, and so, they're, they're, I, so I, both of those I actually just find really lovely ways of, of getting away from the irritating stuff um, into the stuff that, that where I have a lot more control. Um, so I remember like, for most of us, I think when we're working on those data sets, we actually play music. I remember you used to listen to baseball games. Is that still the case? Are you still listening to baseball games where you're working? Yeah, well, I, miss, um, I followed about five games yesterday. I mean, the, the baseball season has just started. Um, we'll see how long it lasts. Um, it, may fall, it may fall apart. I, Florida Marlins had four cases of, of COVID yesterday. Um, you know, they, 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 they've expanded the rosters to 30. They may have to expand them to 60 in order to, keep, to, to be able to play. Um, yeah, I like it. Baseball is this lovely thing. We're, we're, Unlike hockey, which I pay attention to, where you have to follow it all the time, baseball is so slow that you can pay attention to something else and then come back and you, can, you completely understand where it was and how, and how, and how it got there. Um, so, um, Samina, Samina uh, just in terms of uh, timekeeping, we're at 9.50. Should we continue for 10 more minutes and then we'll do Q&A? Yep, that sounds good. Okay, so, oh. I may need a minute. What happened? Yay. <laughs> Hello. Oh, how nice. You want to meet little Ellie. Hey, Ellie. Ellie wanted to meet everybody. Okay. See? Mommy's in a work call. How nice, okay. how nice, Ellie, how nice to see you and how nice to hear you. Okay. Is that better? Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry about these guys. <laughs> can you hear my cat? Can you hear my cat who's responding to Ellie? Oh, the kitty cat wants to say hi. Okay. This is better. Um, so, well, how did you, since we're on this topic, how did you manage, uh, you know, being so productive while having three kids? <laughs> um, I have a partner who's even more productive. I um, remember she was doing her PhD while we were doing our PhD. Yeah, she did. When my, when our youngest child went back, to, went, started school, um, she did her master's and then, um, and went from there to do her PhD. Um, and was yeah, I was doing her PhD while we had kids. Um, um, partly that, partly um, you've got your daughter sitting on your lap. Um, when my kids were f about six, I started taking them to conferences. Um, in fact, I, I left. I was going down to the academy. The, the year was in Cincinnati. I left the house and was driving down Cincinnati because from Ann Arbor, Cincinnati is not that far. And I thought I would drive, and I got about I don't know 10, 15, 20 miles out of town. I thought, why am I going down here by myself? Um, so I turned around and came back and said, uh, this is pre-cell phone, so I couldn't recall, um, and said, um, I'm going to take Marion Tamsin with me to Cincinnati. What, you know, um, let's get them dressed and you know, pack, pack a few clothing, a few clothes and let's go. Uh, and let's make sure that Luke doesn't wake up so that he doesn't notice that they're leaving. Because uh, I, I could handle two, but I couldn't handle three. Um, and, and he's still angry about that. And this is 30 years later, 25 years later, and he's still angry at me about it. Um, but... Um, that act, in, in a funny way, that helped a lot. Um, going to conferences, traveling with me, you know, I've taken kids to Singapore, they've all been to Africa. 
uh, several different countries in Africa. Um, they've all been to Paris. Um, it's uh, it just helped me get a better sense of who, where they, who they were, and where they were at a different point in time. Sort of to be able to spend time with them, but also um, not spend time. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I have made trade-offs. They have made trade-offs. There's, there's no ambiguity about that. Um, you know, there's a uh, there's a saying in my family that when somebody asks me how long I'm going to take, you know, when am I going to be finished, I always say an hour. Um, and it has zero information content. Um, you know, once in a while, once in a very, very blue moon, it's less than an hour, and many times it can be all night. Um, and there's there there has been a price with that. I mean, there there are times when I haven't spent time with my kids I wish I had spent. Yeah, I know there's there's been more than a couple times that we've been at a meeting and you your wife would call and say like, oh, what time are you going to be home? And you would say an hour. An hour goes by, an hour and a half goes by. We're still working on this data set. And then two hours go by and she calls again. So what time are you going to be home? Oh, yeah, in an hour. And it just kept going. And then it was eight or nine o'clock. And, you know, at some point you were like, okay, I think it's time to call it a night. I think it was probably the third or fourth time. And, you know, I was just so amazed that your wife would never get mad at you. Yeah, I'm incredibly fortunate that way. <laughs> and you, I guess she was used to it as well. Yeah, for whatever reason. I mean, we just spent um, we spent five days together in a car driving to BC and six days driving back, and it was, uh, and frankly, it was wonderful. Um, it's actually very nice to be trapped with someone you love a lot, um, in you know, in the front seat, in the front seat, two front seats of a car, and 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 have the opportunities, you know, to spend spend time talking with you with each other, which you don't normally have. That is that is very true. So that's good advice. Um, I think my husband knows exactly what you're going to be taught, what your wife is going to go through at some point, just because the poor thing has been taking care of Ellie all morning. Ah. Okay, you want to play with the computer. I know, I know. This is so much fun. Um, so I guess the, the I, we'll, we'll, we'll jump into the questions uh, in a second, but um, I guess the one, the last one thing that I wanted to ask you is, I, I think I had the privilege, so did Samina and others in this call to have you as a mentor and an advisor. So if you had to give others that didn't have that privilege and that honor, what, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I'm not, I don't think I'm very good at advice. Um, I think I'm reasonably good at doing stuff. Um, I'm not that good at telling people what to do. Um, main, you know, mainly, <clears throat> mainly it's find something and stick to it. Change when you have to be adaptable, but be sequentially adaptable and spend the time it needs. And that's, you know, whether you're an advisor, or whether you're a student, just spend the time it needs. And with doctoral, doctoral, I mean, every every doctoral relationship is different, right? I mean, this with, with an MBA program, there's kind of standard per patterns, and it varies a little bit from student to student, but there's really, there's so many MBA students, and the, and the, the half-life is so short that, that it's hard. I mean, I've got one MBA student right now who I'm pretty close to, who um, we make time to talk about lots of things, but for the most part, that's those are, those are fleeting. Um, doctoral relationships are long. Um, they're lifelong, actually, um, and every one of them is different. And if you try to impose one pattern on another, um, you know, something that worked by, you know, good luck or good happen chance on one, and you try to impose it on another, it fails. Um, so just figure out what it needs and, and do it. Um, it's, 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 I, yeah, that's, that's really interesting because Eric, even even in my cohort, you, you led the dissertation for all three of us, me, Nell, and Olga. We both we all graduated from our PhD at the same time, and I think the 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 
the support that you gave each of us was different uh, based on what we needed at the time. So um, we were just extremely lucky to have you there, um, even though you left after our third year. So yeah, <laughs> so yeah, you see how that. Luke would get upset at that, at the fact that you would just leave. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was very cool, because you're right, you came in at the same time, if I remember correctly, all three of you stayed with, with Dillis and me, and again, the kids for a, few, for a few days while you're getting settled in Ann Arbor. Um, you worked together really closely, you did three different, three dissertations that were hugely different. You graduated on the same days. Literally, you know, we'd, we'd, we, if I, remember, I do remember we strung the three, the three defenses together, one after the other. Um, and and it's a good example, you're, you're just different individuals intellectually, emotionally, all of the above. Um, and one thing I think helped was in each case, if I remember correctly, there was a co-chair, so, and there was a different co-chair in each of the three, 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 uh, three dissertations. And, and that's certainly something I do a lot. Um, not so much to spread the work, but to, to, to make sure that the ideas don't get, get too narrow. Um, you know, so I've done a co-chair here with with Ann Bowers on one dissertation that went really well. I've done a co-chair with uh, with Tim Rowley, again, that really went really well. And in both cases, we got, the, the, the students got hugely dissertations than they would have got had it just been with me or just been with Tim or just been with Ann. And you have to pick the people you're working with to make sure that you, know, that, that, that you can be compatible and not push somebody off in different directions. But I think it's valuable. Yeah, and I think, I, I mean, even to this day, I think uh, it's, it's been a valuable experience to have had the PhD with both Olga and Nell, and we still work together. And I think one of the other advice that you gave us was always to be in touch with research and, pre, you know, the, what makes you a better researcher is just presenting your work and getting your, your work out there and, you know, changing things and, 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 and adapting to, to what needs to be done um, while still trying to be true to your ideas. Yeah. Um, so we are almost on the hour. So I was gonna take uh, a screenshot before people, uh, before we go, we move on to the Q and A session. If that's okay with everybody who has a video, maybe you can smile a little bit. So Elaine, I was gonna ask everyone who's appropriately dressed from the waist up if you could show your video. That would be great. It looks a lot better on our YouTube channel and on our Twitter feed. And I will say, I think we've all learned there. One of the lovely things about Zoom is being able to see eyeballs. Um, we're actually closer to each other than we would be in a seminar room or in a classroom. And, and that's turned up, that there's a real plus in that. It's, it's quite cool. And, yeah. and, and I think uh, based on my attendance to conferences and PDWs and it, it, it creates a different, it, it provides an opportunity to, for like, I've seen some chat rooms that are incredibly helpful, especially with doctoral students presenting. You have this array of questions that Otherwise, you know, they're just coming up as you're presenting that you wouldn't have at a regular presentation at Academy or anything else because there's a more structural setting. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's been, it's been quite a few, uh, a few positives from doing this. Yeah, and there isn't, a, there isn't a back row or a hidden corner the way there is in a classroom or a seminar room. Um, we're, all, all right. we're all in the front row, at least, at least, at least through the first 49. <laughs> That's right. All right, so maybe if we could all look at the screen, I'll count to three and then everyone smile. Okay, one, two, three, cheese. All right, I think I got a good picture, Elena. Okay, good. Um, so let's move uh, to the Q&A session. I think some of the questions uh, are interesting and they also flow from the conversation that we had now. 
Um, one of the questions that's, uh, that I think a lot of people would ask is, how can you be so productive and publish so many papers? I think uh -huh. Xiao Xu was, was the original person who asked that, at least in this chat. Have the, uh, have, have, have the smarts to pick good co-authors, many of whom start as doctoral students, not all, but many. Um, I mean, Z, you know, you and I've had the, I've had the pleasure of working with you on this, the, the paper around institution mediation. And if I think about the combination of you and Gary and Druba, and I hope me, um, you know, we've got a really cool piece of work that's come because of the interaction among the four of us. I can't imagine anyone, I certainly can't imagine myself doing it by myself. And I don't, I think, I, I can't imagine really any one of the four of us uh, being able to do that piece of work, both, both, um, uh, theoretically and, and empirically and, and in terms of methods and um, you know so yeah have good you know have, have co-authors who some sense complement each other but more just that you you like working with yeah, I also, very, mm -hmm. um, so I have a very strong uh, impression when I look at your CV first time like well I was at Duke that you like the rate you publish is much higher than a lot of the other scholars. So I'm just wondering, like, how do you manage, I guess, in your earlier um, stage, how do you manage so many pro projects at the same time and then like, publish at such a quick rate? Is it just the co-authors or is, it any, is there any other secrets? No, I probably fall on the spectrum someplace. I can focus on, I, 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 I can focus on things. And, you know, and get it to the stage that it needs, you know, where it needs to be passed off and then, and then I can move on to something else. Um, and, and frankly, I care, um, you know, I, 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 publication, as I said earlier, publication by itself doesn't matter that much. It's an imprimatur, but I really care a lot about getting the ideas worked through to be able to um, know what I think and hopefully engage with others around what I think. Um, I really, and, and, and again, it's one of the glories of this profession is that we have the, the right and the responsibility to come up with a core idea and get it clean. You know, think about all, some of us have worked in consulting, consulting and many of us know consultants. Um, they just are getting to the nuts and really figuring out what's going on and the client stops paying and they have to go on and work for something else. And they never truly figure it out. You know, or you know, business problem that some really smart person is working on, and um, they're just beginning to fig figure it out. And then the technology changes, the competition changes, the regulation changes, the politics change, and all of a sudden, everything they've done they throw away, and they and, and it's six months old and it's irrelevant, and they're picking up on something new. Um, and we don't have to do that. You know, we we get the the you know it's our responsibility and, and luxury to be able to pick something and to get it right. Um, so I'll, I think Richard had kind of a similar question uh, about author co-authorship. Richard, do you want to ask your question? Yeah, my question uh, was, what does it mean to be a good co-author? And who have you observed being an especially good co-author and what made them so good? Um, Probably two things, timeliness and really focusing on the ideas, you know, and not just doing a cursory sort of light handed run through it, but really drilling down into not the whole thing, picking up 
one thing in the project that needs to be worked on right now and really get down as deep as it can. Um, and, you know, Elena, you and I published together, Samina, you and I published together, Z, you and I are working together. Um, all three of you are great co-authors because all three of you do that. Am I, am I missing anybody? Joshua, you and I have not yet had the the the, the, the wonderful opportunity to work together, but um, uh, that, that may not well. <laughs> I hope it does. Um, I think I think Mingjer Chen was uh, raising his hand on this one. Oh, you need to unmute yourself. Elena, I absolutely love your boy. His boy, right? What's that, Mingjer? Yeah. Um, um, first, my apologies to uh, Semina, you know, that because I, 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 I was at another meeting and as I came back and then so I can only turn my face. So I, I lose that <laughs> golden moment. Um, perhaps, you know, let, let, let me speak from, from two perspectives. Um, I think the first, um, Will and I are very much contemporary. So, so I have um, witnessed, you know, firsthand through throughout my career uh, how much, you know, you know what kind of you know, scholars that um, he has been, and the kind of role model that he has set for for many doctor students and researchers and and his friends and colleagues like myself. Um, and not only that. Uh, certainly, I want to give the credit. Perhaps is because of a, a number, and I think Will, and to me, remind me another, you know, Michigan professor, uh, Jim Westfall. I think two of them, from my viewpoint, are very much alike in that regard, and basically just have given their whole hearts, you know, to to the research and working with the doctor student and, and, and so on and so on. And I think Richard raised a very interesting question, which I would like to to um, um, to to hear from from Will in terms of your view, because different um, uh, colleagues have different views in terms of working with the doctor students, and uh, some of my colleagues always think that doctor students will help to increase the productivity and so on and so on. And other set of, of, of professors and even uh, disciplines say, I would not publish with my doctor students um, until like, uh, like, like the fifth years after his or her graduation. Or, and I would not be uh, writing together with my doctor students in his or her dissertation. And personally, I made a completely different uh, decision because I very much consider, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm a diehard strategic choice school of thought. So I decided not to work with any doctor students almost throughout my career until the, the recent years. And because when I was a junior faculty member at Columbia, that, and even when I was a doctor student at Maryland, and uh, I, my, my two favorite professors uh, compete and they even fight uh, trying to get my 
teaching assistantship. So as a Chinese, I just walk away from working with the doctor students. I, I think that is a very conscious decision. And because of that, I have become and develop a closer relationship with many doctor students. So, so I was very involved in the doctor consortium early in my career. And then I also created quite a few academic communities and helping working with the, with the doctor students. So I, I would be interested in your thoughts that what would be a good advice um, in taking into account all the different you know, intellectual and educational and even political considerations um, in terms of working with the doctor students? I know it's a big question. Minter, I don't think there's one single answer, but I think, right. you've, I think you've got at the core point, which is to make a conscious choice, right? Yeah. And I think different, for different people, it's different ways. Um, Ollie Williamson worked with a lot of doctoral students. Um, and for the most part, those were students who were working with him to help him develop transaction cost theory. And transaction cost theory is stronger as a result of the fact that, you know, Joanne Oxley and lots of others worked with Ollie to help develop it. But it was very much around his mission, his vision of what his theory was, and, and the doctoral students were partners in that, but it was Ollie at the center of it. And yeah. it was stunningly successful. And for some of us, that's the right choice. Um, others, and I think I probably put my, myself in this camp, well, are start with what's the idea that the doctoral student has and how can we develop it? And there's some things I can help with and some things I can't. So there's some of me in there as well, because as much as I find all sorts of things interesting, there's some I just don't know enough about and can't get enough, can't up, get up speed fast enough to, to help with. So you know, the better dissertations are the ones where there's at least some linkage to what I've done and, and do. Um, but for the most part, I've tried to take the doctoral students' ideas at the center and see, see where, where I can help push that. And if I think about, Lena, your dissertation, uh, Samina, your dissertation, Xiaoxu, your dis dissertation, those are three very different pieces of work. And the cool things that have come out of them are very different. And you know, I'd like to think I played some role in that, but you're the primary drivers of that. Um, and have been. Um, so you make a choice. Um, and for some reason, just for some folks, the right choice is I'm not going to work with doctoral students. Because you have to, you either have to do it fully or not at all. Right? Because you frankly, you screw up somebody's life. If you dabble at it. And, and, you know, and it is that, it, it is that fundamental. Because yeah. uh, this is, I mean, as everyone, every one of us in, in this room know, um, dissertation and the doctoral program is a life-changing event. Uh, it, it literally does change the way you think, it changes the way you look at the world. It takes one, one set of eyeballs out of your head and puts another set of eyeballs in. And if you're going to engage with, with somebody in the process of that surgery um, and that mental change, you damn well better be committed to it. And if you don't want to be committed to it, that's fine, because you know, there's an infinite number of things we can do in our careers. Do something else. But don't do it, don't, don't, don't do it halfway. I think in a way, I think you also raise another very important question uh, is that, um, so, so you have this big research program and then all the doctor students will play a role in this big research program. 
And, and then another question is, I also have colleagues, you know, will completely go with the student's interest and then let the student's interest to drive, you know, his or her interest. And the versus another extreme is if the student want to work with, with, with me, that you have to study the kind of research question that I'm interested in. So that's one issue. Mm -hmm. Another issue, you know, I, 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 for instance, like I spoke to Don Hembrick, and who is also known, you know, uh, in developing the future scholars. And, and then even several years ago, he already told me that he would not take more students because he cannot make five years the commitment and, and given um, the phase of his career. And then suddenly he told me this time that now he, he has another doctorate student. So he will com commit another five years. So, so I think, so, so the question could be something that, I, I think your point is very well taken. So unless uh, you, you, you can truly help and work with the student through the process, you would not take a student. And, uh, and we, we have the luxury, I mean, this is one of those lovely things where if you, even if you change schools, and some of us do, you can keep working with a student. I've demonstrated that. Um, even if you retire, I haven't retired yet, but I know <laughs> you have retired uh, who keep working with students. Um, you know, Al Chandler was working on research till the day he died. Ollie Williamson was working on research till the day he died. Um, you know, if, if, um, so, so long as you keep at least some of your faculties, um, you can stay engaged. Uh, you know, whether it's in a different school, whether it's emeritus, whatever. Well, you know. Elena, Elena needed to step away for just a yeah. few minutes. So if it's okay, I'm gonna continue with the Q&A. Um, we have a question from Tria Hathley. Tria, are you, you wanna unmute yourself? Yeah, thank you, Samina. Uh, so my question to you, Will, is uh, what advice do you have for someone who is just starting out, you know, who is in exploration phase, who is trying to identify the knowledge gap in the academics? Because I've just completed my master's. I'm not even a doctoral student yet. But I know that I want to get into the strategy field. Uh, but uh, every time I read something and I have an idea, I feel like someone else has already worked on that. So how do you identify that innovation uh, in the academics? So thank you. Yeah. Um... So one, I think I mentioned this before, one thing I've started doing the last couple of years is, is these gaps tables where, and, 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 and we're actually, I'm actually doing that with co-authors now relatively early in projects um, to say, here's the broad space I'm interested in and then and try to narrow it down. And it gives, it gives some definition to what I'm working on and then, and then drill down as hard as you can. What are the, con so, so what, are the, what are the related set of concepts that are relevant for the question you care about. Within that related set of quest concepts, what have people already said and know? And then, and where are the gaps? And there's always gonna be gaps. And then you have to make a decision whether the gaps are big enough or interesting enough, or you wanna push them enough to be worth going after. And at this stage, um, do that multiple times. Um, I mean, I think of a PhD program as the first year and a half or two years is exploration. Um, it's, and it's, in some sense, it's shopping, right? Um, it's trying, going into a bunch of different stores, trying on theories, trying on methods, trying on questions, um, seeing which ones fit, which ones don't fit, which ones resonate, um, which ones you like the way they, you like the way they feel, which ones, when other people look at them, they think they fit you as well. And then roughly a year and a half in, two years in buying. 
and saying, you know, this is this is what I'm going to do this station on. And so it makes sense in that first couple of years to really try on a bunch of ideas. And and something like the gaps table may help with that because you can, it, it forces you to say, this is the question. Here are the concepts that are relevant for the question. Here's the here's the the people and, and literatures that are that have talked about those concepts. Um, this is what they know. This is what they don't know. Is what they don't know something I want to engage with to to help fill that gap? Um, and so you know, try doing that multiple times. Uh, but I don't think that and I don't think that goes away. As I said earlier, we're all junior scholars, right? So whether you're doing it um, at the very beginning of a PhD program or whether you're doing it, you know, 38 years into a PhD program, um, it's still the same thing. And, and I think Cian had a kind of a good follow-up question to that. Cian, do you want to do your question? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Alina. And uh, we have, uh, uh, nice to meet you here. And thanks. Uh, and I also learned a lot from working with you. So my question goes to you is uh, for a junior scholar, what do you see as important for them, but not all junior scholars actually notice that importance? So do you have something in mind like this from a backward looking perspective? Yeah. I'm sort of useless. Z, I'm sort of useless at looking backwards. Um, it's a random walk, and I, I can make up logic, but it doesn't really mean much. It's just it's just ex post. Um, I mean, and this is going to sound really general and really, but but pick something you care about and work on it. Yeah. Uh, and and do your damnedest to convince relevant parts of the world that it matters. Um, don't expect the world to, to 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 believe you. You know, when you say it matters the first time or th second time or third time. Um, you know, think about what we've been going through with the, the with the, the reviews on on the institutional mediation paper. Um, yeah. um, you know, we're beginning to get to the point where people believe us, but boy, it's been a lot of it. Yeah. Um, but if we give up, they're not going to believe us. So you know, it's our job to keep making the case for if this matters. Yeah, got it. Yeah, thanks, you. Um, I, I, I on on a on a more specific talk. I, I have a more specific question, I guess. Um, I was in a in a PDW where and one one junior scholar said, uh, I, I think Samina was there too. We were talking about editors and journals and how some journals are asking authors to actually put down the name of potential editors or potential reviewers. Um, and one junior scholar said, I never do that because I I assume that the senior editor knows best. Um, I had a different impression from that, but I wanted to hear your thoughts on this more specific question. Should a junior scholar put down who you think the reviewers and editors should be or no? Um, absolutely, yes. Um, and, and as you know, you should also cite those people in the first two paragraphs of the paper. Um, and if you find yourself putting down an editor and reviewers who you haven't cited, there's something wrong with the way you built the logic in the paper. So make, make sure you go put, 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 and don't just sort of add them to the end of the string of reviews make sure that the paper actually builds around their work. Um, I mean, I've, I, I've edited roughly 3,000 papers at SMJ um, and then model, you know, lots of others in other journals. Um, I, I, I've, I've, I think I've written, I've written I, I track them. So I've written, I've written something over 3,000 decision letters at SMJ. Um, and um, the way I pick reviewers is I first read the first couple paragraphs to see what body of work that people are engaging with. And I try to pick somebody who's there or somebody who's related to the, who's there, but I could miss it. Or you may have an idea that you forgot to put there or maybe showed, maybe showed up better elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, tell me who you, tell you, 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 you know, just as it's your responsibility to the audience, it helped to, to decide, decide on who, who the audience is. Tell me who the audience is. I can agree or disagree. 
Um, and sometimes, you know, I, I'll look at somebody and say, you know, you think that person's going to be the right person, but I think you're wrong because I've seen lots of reviews from them and they look at things in different ways. And how, who besides me has had the, the experience of having a really nice conversation with somebody at a conference and putting them down as a, rev as a suggested review reviewer or, just, you know, really, really realizing that they've shown up as a reviewer and realizing that they're looking at it in very, very different ways than I wish they had looked at it. Um, is that a question or have you done that? <laughs> and I strongly agree. It's, it's my job as, a, as an editor to be a partner with you to figure out who, you know, who thoughtful set of reviewers are. Not an easy set of reviewers. Um, a tough-minded set of reviewers who will take the question from your point of view. And, but you can help me with that. And, and I think on a, on a, similar, on a related note, uh, I think Renata had a question about topic. Renata? Uh, hello. Uh, hey, yes, Renata. the question was actually asked already um, before, like two or three people before me, like kind of when is the topic, when, how do I know that the topic really is worth investigating? But I think you answered that already with um, yeah. your answer with the Excel sheet and uh, the columns. Yeah, and just you know to, to to reinforce that slightly, talk about the topic several times in conferences and work and workshops, mm -hmm. and find and you may discover that it just you just cannot find a way to get people to resonate. You know, and and, and at some point it's where you know be 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 compulsive and obsessive and stick to some, but but sometimes you don't give up. Um, <laughs> but fine, but for the most part, you, you learn what the language is that will get people to connect to it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I think a, a good exercise that Will also always made us do was to write a first paragraph of what we think that paper would be. Um, and that was always a good exercise just to like mentally, okay, if I had to write a paper about this, how would I put this into like four sentences? Um, Will, do you want to talk a little bit about your four sentences? I think some, some people here may already know them. Yeah, I won't belabor it, but you know, the first sentence is what's the question? which is a, I, a great first sentences have both a dependent variable and an, and an independent variable in them, right? You know, how does X affect Y? Or how does Y affect X, depending on, on your logic? Um, so the, right off the bat, people know sort of what, what realm you're in. And then the second sentence is, I think of as the, the, the it's a two-parter with the audience and the conventional wisdom. Who are the scholars that I want to talk to that have thought about that question in the first sentence? And what, what have they concluded? Um, and so now by the second sentence, I know who I'm talking to, and I've read the literature well enough to know what the conventional wisdom is in that, in, in that part of the literature. Um, and then third sentence is, what does that group of people not know? And, 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 and said in a way that, um, that they'll agree that they don't know it. Um, and then the fourth sentence is, what am I going to argue that will help fill part of the gap that they don't know? And, you know, those of you who've done this, with me know how hard this is and how many times you write it. Um, I'm, I'm just, just before this call, I was working on editing a paper, the final, on the final edits of a paper that we're gonna send off for review as soon as I finish these edits. And I'm changing words in the first paragraph again. And we have written this, I don't wanna think about how many times we've written this. Um, I, I, I'll tell the story. Um, George, some of you, Elena, you took a class with George Gopin, right? Who's, George, is a, yes. George is a lawyer, he's a member of the English faculty at Duke. He has a theory of writing that is a reader-based view of writing. 
and it changed the way I write because I used to think that the important stuff was what you started with. And George says, no, the important stuff is what you end with. Um, the last word of a sentence, the last sentence of a paragraph, the last paragraph of a section. What you start with sets people up, but what people take away is where you end. And George did a study a bunch of years ago where he took a bunch of papers that had been rejected by English journals and changed one thing in half of them and sent them back out again to new journals. And by whatever norms of reliability English scholars judge, um, judge, um, judge he got uh, a differential acceptance rate on the papers where he had changed the one thing. And the one thing he changed was the last sentence in the first paragraph. Which in, you know, for me is, this is what this, this is the argument I'm gonna make in this paper that fills the gap that we talked about earlier in this paragraph. And, and how many of us have reviewed? How many of us have got to the end of the first paragraph or the end of the introduction and already decided that we're gonna reject the paper and the rest of the reading is you know, looking for reasons to reinforce why we're gonna reject the paper? Um, and so if you lose the reader in the first paragraph, you will never get them back. So, and just be really, really clear in that first paragraph and, and sentence next, you know, next paragraph is important because it sort of does some framing. The last paragraph in that, in the introduction is really important because it says these are the contributions. And it's not a laundry list of eight things. It's two or three things that are closely related to each other. Then you know, if you do that, you get a chance at least to get, you know, at least you, you keep the, re, re, the, the reviewer engaged enough to say, well, let's see whether they can deliver. And you gotta get the rest of it right too. Um, but the longer you can keep them engaged, you know, the setup in the, the first paragraph in the introduction, then the logic, whether it's a research question or hypo, well, the back, I guess the background, your, your explanation of the, the literature in the theory section or the background section. And then the logic you use for research questions or hypotheses, have got to hold and then the research design has to make sense and you can lose them at every one of those points but the farther you can get in unless you really hit a fatal flaw the more likely you are to get an r and r you know for somebody to say somebody to say well okay you've got me convinced but i see some some issues with the logic but you can fine-tune the logic or you've got me convinced i've got through the logic i see some issues with the research design but if you can solve those we can move ahead with it or if you're really lucky, you've got all the way through and now we're into the discussion section and I disagree with one of the, the, one of the, the, the implications you're drawing, but we can fine tune it. You're not gonna get rejected on the re in the discussion section. You might get rejected in the first paragraph. So it's worth just a little bit of time and effort. So I think the conversation now it's about uh, specific papers, but Nikisha had a question about the pipeline in general. Nikisha, do you wanna ask your question? Uh, yes. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for uh, this opportunity. And so I was wondering, I'm a first year PhD student at Baruch College and I work with uh, Elena Vidal. So thank you for all the great things that you've worked on with her. And one of the things that we talk about in terms of just setting us up for a career in academia is just building a strategy of a, for a strong pipeline of research papers. And I was just wondering if you had any strategies that you use to kind of keep your pipeline full, especially when you were focused on getting tenure and being out on the market? Yeah, um, so first off, just taking the last point, I don't think I've ever focused on getting tenure. Um, I think getting tenure is, an, is a secondary outcome of being engaged in the field. 
you know, through your publications, through your through through your teaching, through through workshops and seminars and conferences and the like. Um, it's something that you know we get tenure means we can keep on doing what we've always been doing. Um, so I've never really, I mean, I, I care about tenure because it means I can keep on doing what I what I what I've always been doing. But it, it's not the goal. Um, the goal is to to do things. Um, and maybe one way to think about it is is every few years start another dissertation. Um, you know, do a pick. You know, do a, do a piece of dissertation work. Um, you know, get s several ideas out of it that turn it ideally turn into some combination of publishable ideas and workshop presentations, conference presentations. Um, so, partly for yourself, so that you can get a core set of ideas that you understand how things fit together. Partly for the field, so that the field sees how your ideas fit. You know, that there's some coherence to your ideas. That it's not just a whole bunch of stuff that happens to show up on a CV. Um, and then what, and that takes time, um, right? I mean, we were talking earlier about projects that can take nine years or 12 years or 15 years or whatever the number is. Um, you know, uh, tenure clocks are faster than 50, even slow tenure clocks. I think there may be some tenure clocks that are 10. There's certainly not, there's some as low as six. Um, there's certainly, or five or four. Um, there's some, none, none that I know that are 15. Um, so why you're getting, <laughs> taking, and and our field, our field, you know, for mo for many of us, our field is a combination of empirics and theory, right? There are some fields where it's just empirics. There's some fields where it's just theory. Um, it's faster to get stuff out because there's more focus. Um, all of us who've gone through review know how hard it is to get all the reviewers and the editor lined up on the theoretical contribution on and or for at least framing on the empirical on the research design. It just takes us time. And there's no way around that, given the field we're in. Um, and fields change a bit over time, but but not that much. Um, so start, you know. So while you're still, you know, busting your tails to sort of figure out the connections and get the pieces out, start another dissertation. Start another dissertation quality piece of research. And occasionally it can be completely different than what you did the first time around. More often it's going to be related in some way. You take the stuff you you, you learn from the first for projects and get intrigued by something else and start something else, possibly with a doctoral student, possibly on your own, possibly with a colleague. Um, I don't think that choice matters that much. It's a choice you need to make, but it can be anyone. But just basically keep doing pieces of research that are worth spending the two to three to four years that it takes to get the dissertation to the point that you can start publishing things from it. So uh, following up on that, uh, Rich, before he left, he had asked a question if, that if you were starting all over as a doctoral student today, what dissertation would you do now? And I think it's still relevant since you, you do dissertations every, every so often. Uh, so what, 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 what would be the next topic that you would choose? Or no, I mean, one topic I'm just beginning to work on now with, um, with Kowant and with, uh, with Naveed is on how does the fact that political openness can go forward and back and market openness can go forward and back, sometimes at the same time, sometimes in off diagonals within countries, and how does that affect business strategy? Now that's just, that I, I happen to find that interesting. Um, and I have some data on, I mean, I, I have some data on market openness that I've been built, that, that on, on a sort of a, a structure that I built, that I, that, I being, that I now have about 15, almost 20 years of data, about 15 years of data. Um, and I have some data from on political openness from The Economist, um, so that I, which I can track over about 15 years. So I've got reasonably good data on, on how, those, how those trend. And it's really, it's, it's actually just unambiguous. 
that they can both go forward and go back and that, that you can have one go forward um, and another one go back. Um, you know, Hungary is a good example. It's gone back on political openness. It's actually gone forward on, on market openness. And um, it's, so I'm intrigued that that's just, but, but, um, but that's me. Um, you know, Rich, you know, Rich asked what I would do. That's pretty, you know, that, that might be what I would work on in a dissertation. Um, but, you know, whatever you find intriguing and, and believe you can convince others is intriguing. I, I remember when I started my PhD program, um, I was being, I was at the top, I remember being sort of setting up for our first welcome orientation session at the top floor of Barrow, Barrows Hall. And one of the students, not in strategy, I forget which field, maybe in operations, uh, came in and said he was really depressed because he decided that he discovered that all the questions had been answered. There was nothing new to answer. And he was just really depressed. Um, and in fact, he quit about six months in because he just couldn't find anything new. But he was wrong. I mean, can you think about operations? Think about operations right now. Are there open questions in operations on on, on July twenty seventh or, or July twenty seventh, uh, two thousand and twenty? Could you could you imagine a, a, a doing a, doing a dissertation on supply on global supply chains in July twenty twenty? You know, whether it was a model or 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 an empirical paper. Um, and lots of other things, um, or you know, just imagine all the stuff that's happening just in time, and and what we've learned about making just in time work or when it doesn't work and that sort of thing. Um, there's always questions. The world changes, and, and it changes in unanticipated ways. Um, and, and some, some, oh, sorry. And sometimes those changes changes even work in your favor. I was doing a paper with Pasha and Siddharth on uh, on banking in in, in India. And we'd got all the way through. We had the data. We had the analysis. It was, you know, it, it was, a, it, it wasn't, it wasn't identified. You know, it was a good correlational study. Um, and then after we had all the data up and had all the logic in place and had tested all the hypotheses, uh, Prime Minister Modi decided to um, to kill the fifty rupee and thousand rupee bills, and which is a complete and it was a completely exogenous shock, unambiguously a completely exogenous shock, and it turned out it was dead relevant to one of our hypotheses. So we used that shock to test, you know, to, to add an, a supplemental test of our hypothesis. Um, that's fun. I don't, I don't obsess about identification, but believe me, when it shows up in my lab, I'll take advantage of it. Asim, do you want to ask your question? Sure. Uh, although now I'm looking very suspiciously at Will, it's like, how much did he pay Modi to get this change done? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> So Will, since we're talking about change and, you know, as I mean, you've been co-editor of SMJ, you're a board member at SMS. What are some of the changes you've seen in the field of strategy over the years that A, on the one hand, you know, you think are very exciting and, and two other things you're concerned about? Yeah, so, so let me start with the core. So the SMS version of strategy has always taken the, the, the position that, that we were allowed to study causally complex questions, right? Um, and, and think about many of the questions in strategy. Could you tease them apart so that they were fully identified and completely separate and, and, and separate them out in a way that you trusted the separation, that you hadn't had to get rid of something that really mattered. And so really from the beginning, and this is really Schendel Hofer, then um, Schendel Teese Rommelt, um, the SMS, the journal, it's always taken the position that 
we're allowed to study questions where you're probably not going to get an unambiguous answer with one study, but if we do enough studies, we can triangulate and get reasonably comfortable with what's going on. Uh, and I've sometimes used the example of acquisition studies for that. I can't imagine doing one study in acquisitions that fully, fully explains even one important thing in acquisitions. But I can't imagine doing what, several hundred, a thousand studies in acquisitions that when you put them together, you get a pretty robust understanding of what's going on with acquisitions. Um, and that's, so that's the right of our field. Now, we've become more sophisticated over time in demands for framing, you know, call it theory if you like, but demands for framing. There was a time when you could do fairly loosey-goosey empirical stuff where you talked to a bunch of people and then wrote it up and it got published and it got cited a lot. And, and I'm not going to name names, but one of, the, one of the most cited papers in SMJ is like that. It's just, you know, somebody talked to 11 um, uh, executives, wrote it up, said that he knew more about it than the executives did because he had more perspective on it, um, and was well, highly accepted as, as, you know, as a really interesting, strong piece of research at the time. It would be really hard to publish that now. Uh, close to impossible. Um, we've become much more aware of the value of longitudinal work. We don't demand it, but we you know, but we'll push pretty hard to you know to to take advantage of longitudinal opportunities because you see things change over time. Um, we've been much more we're much more sophisticated about qualitative methods than we used to be, and we still fight about which qualitative method is right. Um, and that's you know that's probably the biggest flaw in that field is that there's six or eight or ten different ways of doing qualitative work, and the reviewers spend more time beating each other up on their approach to qualitative work than they do on the work work itself. Um, and I wish I was exaggerating, but I'm not. Uh, but we are actually have become much more sophisticated about thinking about how to structure qualitative work. Um, we've learned how to take identification seriously. And we're pretty good, at least in the SMS part, SMJ, SEJ, GSJ part of the world, of saying, if identification is appropriate and possible, do it. If it's not appropriate and possible, it's okay, but you have to be really on honest about the boundaries of what you're finding and push yourself hard. You know, or, you know, whether it's with instruments, whether it's with diff and diff, whether it's through Regin and Zingalis, um, you know, places where things should hold, places where things shouldn't hold. Um, we've become a lot more sophisticated about pushing the boundaries, at least, of causality without falling into the trap of saying it has to be causal. Um, and, you know, we've, we've adopted some field experiments without forcing it, to, you know, without allowing it to take over the field. And there are some fields where if it's not a field experiment, you can't publish. Um, we've avoided falling into that trap. You know, and then you think about the, probably the one social science theory that I think has any explanatory power, has really strong explanatory power, is the theory of imprinting, right? What happens early has a really, really big impact on what continue, on how things continue. And Dan Schendel, with his sort of vision of what SMJ would be, and the others working with him, but Dan especially at the center of that, um, really created that environment in which we could pursue causally complex questions. And then over time, as we become more of a discipline in the field, and I think we are a discipline now rather than a, field, rather than a, co a collection of ideas from other, other disciplines, um, we've become a lot more disciplined about, our, as I said, about our framing and about our methods. But, and, and that continues to evolve. But you know, you we most of us seem you've heard you've been involved in the debates about identification, right? And we have fought the identification wars, and so far we're still winning. Uh, 
and it is a fight, right? Because there's there there are folks who just fundamentally believe that if it ain't identified, it ain't real, and it can't be published. And you know we've and but if you think about it, going from Dan through uh, Ed and Rich and me, through Connie and um, Alfonso and Sendel, there's been a pretty strong thread, and that's the SMJ part. And then think about the editors that have gone through that, you know, that have taken leadership roles at SMJ, at SEJ, and GSJ. Um, there's a really common theme there of being disciplined rather than discipline bound, if that distinction makes any sense. Rather than saying there's only one way of doing research, of saying there's multiple ways of doing research and we're going to beat you up on them because you've got to be really tight about them. But there are different ways of, and it starts with a question and then find a way to do a research design that makes sense for your question. Um, so one question that Rich had asked that I think it's also re relevant for this is, I remember having this conversation with you when I was a doctoral student of like how much to care about identification versus that balance of, you know, is, is it really identified, but it's an important question that you can identify or is the question more important? Uh, but more generally, what is the what is the one advice that you give your doctoral students that is more important than anything else? I don't know. I've got uh, multiple doctoral students. What, 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 let me let me turn that around. Shashu, if there's one piece of advice that that, that I gave or didn't get, or, or that sort of emerged in some sort of emergent way that was useful, what was it? Uh, well, on the top of my mind, I just really resonate with what you said. Um, like when we when we do the um, presentation, we go through the, the research question, everything and the logic, and we realize things that we couldn't identify um, like before, but well, we have been working on that. And I really, um, I, just, I just feel like uh, during my practice talks, um, like for my dissertation, you raised a lot of very good questions as well, like during, during the talk. I think those are super valuable. Um, okay. Samina, what about you? I very clearly remember this, and I have passed it down to many others. When I was a junior scholar and the pressures of tenure were upon me, and there's so many things that you have no control over um, at your institutions and things, you said, keep your head down and get your work done. And that's been advice I've followed. I, I tell myself that all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've had conversations with deans where deans tell me this is the type of work I'd like you to do. And I tell them, um, this is, the, the, I'm, the, that's irrelevant. This is the work I'm going to do. And, and I can do it here or I can do it somewhere else. I don't really care. Um, but this is the type, this is the work I'm going to do. Z, I, I mean, you were, you weren't my doctoral student, but we worked together closely. Um, is there anything, anything comes to mind to you? Yeah, so I was most impressed when I received the R2R table and the gap table from UView. So it totally changed my view of how to do this kind of R&R process. So I was always thinking about writing first and then write the response letter, but you fundamentally change how I should do the R&R. So this is most valuable for me yeah, in terms of guiding thoughts from you. Yeah, this I've been doing for a few years now, you know, taking every review and, and again, three columns. One column, I just copy in the full, the full, the full comment. The second comment, I summarize it down to a few words so that I really know what they're asking. 
and then the third column I write a draft of what how I'm going to respond, and then we do this. You know, we'll as he says, we'll cycle this around around the authors because it really helps figure out what they're asking and figure out a roadmap before either ignoring something or just answering the wrong question. Lena, what about you? What did you, uh, what did you the four sentences. To me, it's always been it 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 just provided such a structure that I don't know. I I always feared this this. I don't know. I think it helped me through a couple of things. One was, you know, you're starting this big project that it's a dissertation or this big paper and facing a blank piece of Word document and not knowing where to start was just very overwhelming. And it just narrowed it down to something that was very manageable. It was like, just focus on this four sentences. Um, and that created, you know, it was like, if I stopped staring at a blank document, I just had something to go on and it allowed me to think about, okay, so from this, if this is what I'm going to try to do in this last sentence, this is the gap of the paper, this is my contribution, it just created a, a whole, I could see the plan of what the paper would look like. And I think for me, that was advice that I, I if I have a, a new idea, that's where I always start the first paragraph. And, and, and at least for me, it just, it, it helped me overcome some of the, some of the fears of having to write something. Yeah. So it was, it was, it's, it, for me, it was great advice. Um, I also remember somebody else, it wasn't you, uh, but this was some funny and good advice that somebody said uh, while well, I was a PhD student. And they said, um, it's better to keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than to open it up and confirm it. Uh, so I always thought that was, that was an interesting, uh, an interesting tad, uh, you know, tidbit of, of information, but it, always, it also helped me think about, okay, so I have to have my, my head clear on, the, on that four yeah. sentence because if that's clear, then I'm not going to make a fool of myself. Um, yeah, so, so let, me, let me push on that a bit. Can we survive in this career without opening our mouths? Probably not. I'll take the probably out, right? We make our career partly through what we publish. And even publishing, I don't think you can do without opening your mouth. But even if you even imagine you could publish papers without opening your mouth, just sort of sitting in your office, writing them, you know, revising them, and eventually getting them accepted. Um, we really get known in the profession and, and our ideas and our ideas move and we begin a position in the profession, largely through the inter interactions we have with people at conferences and workshops and seminars and the like. And if you just sit in a seminar and never say anything, um, you're invisible. So, and this is risky, you know, because as you say, you open your mouth, there is a risk that somebody will think you're a fool. Um, and there's occasionally times when people open their mouths too much or just really keep pushing on one thing that's dead. Um, that, you know, that the, the, point, the point has been made and it keeps getting made over and over and over again, uh, which sort of loses power. Um, but um, part of developing ourselves in the, in, the, in the profession is, you know, learning, learning how to be engaged in a conversation. And I think uh, Rich had, had asked us a question about this, that I, you know, one of the things that I think we keep getting uh, especially as doctoral students, it's it's, about, it's all it's it's mostly about how do you actually do the research, and um, it's less so about some of the softer skills that you need in terms of like, do I want this person to be a colleague? I think we're, we're we have to think of ourselves as more of a more than just the researcher, but also as a scholar. So yeah. uh, Rich had asked uh, some question about you know what makes a good colleague, um, and you know what who's a good colleague that you know would be a good role model for us to follow. Anybody who's open-minded and engaged, I mean, and 
you know, and I'm not going to name names because this is being recorded, but but those of you at Duke have spent time at Duke know one faculty member who you originally come, come away from being really scared of, and then over time you realize how powerful and, and, and valuable he is. Lena, do you know who I'm talking about? Yep. Um, and because he's engaged, and because he takes an author point of view, scholar point of view. Um, those are those are those are good colleagues. But you know, coming back to the to the, the opening your mouth, I was at the first CC Triple C in in Carnegie, and it was about a year before I was coming up for tenure. Um, I was going to have to put together a list of twelve people who were going to be that the school would send letters to, and I looked around the room and I realized that ten of the twelve were there. You know, and so I mentally had a choice: do I keep my mouth shut, and you know, and and hope that they you know don't get angry at me, or do I shoot my mouth off? And I'm constitutionally incapable of not opening my mouth, um, so. I shut it off, um, but that's but but it was also it's just can, it's just it's truly glorious when you're in an environment where you know ten of the people who you want to be a peers with or want to at least aspire to, to contribute to the conversation with are there, and so take it you know take the opportunity to engage in the conversation do it respectfully obviously, um, but be you know be engaged in it. And following up from that, I think Richard also asked a similar question. He just changed one word, but I think it's 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 relevant, especially for for me at this stage, where um you know I just got to become an associate and I'm transitioning into actually working more heavily with students. Um, you know, I I think some of us had a great role model in you as to what is a good PhD advisor and mentor, but what would make a good mentor in your view, and um, and why? And can you mention can you can you think of somebody who would be a good a good mentor? Well, it's, I think it's, it's an attribute. I actually don't like the word mentor because mentor creates an image to me of somebody, somebody on their knees looking up at somebody else. Um, I prefer to think of it as master craftspeople and apprentices. And I think of doctoral students as apprentices. Right? And I think about what an apprenticeship program is. You go in and you start doing the work. And you start out with simple skills, simple tasks. And as you, you know, gain experience with those, you, get, you, you take on more more complex tasks. And at some point you get to the point where you know as much as the, the, the master craft person and, and in many cases more. Um, and then you know in, in turn you become a master craft person who's you know in a position of you know continuing to to hone his or her skills. Um, so for me a good you know, someone who's good to work with is someone who will make sense of what skills you have, will put you to work on things that will help you learn new skills and then we'll keep advancing the work you do as you get the base. Um, I don't want to work with people who just leave you stuck and doing doing scut work for three or four years because it's you know because that's you know that helps them. Um, nor do I want to work with somebody who throws you into the deep end too much and gets really frustrated because you're not capable of doing what you haven't learned how to do yet. Um, and and it has to be somebody who's going to spend time talking with you or communicating with you in one way or another. And every communication is different. Each different communication channel is different. Um, but, I, but I do think of it as an apprenticeship role. You know, for a PhD student, when's the right time to start a research project? You know, day one. Because if you wait till, you know, the third year after you've done the comps to start figuring out how to do research, um, it's you know, two, two, two to three years too late. Um, and will will the first projects be messy? Yep. Will they break? Yep. Um, 
On the other hand, you know, Olga and I started that project with Dow Jones as the first project. Um, and damn it, it actually got published about a year ago. Um, you know, or think about the project, uh, Elena, that we started on institutional intermediation with incubators. Oh, yeah. Which took a long time and started out messy and started out as a red state, not even, you know, not even so much a red state paper, it's just a red paper with very little theory in it, just what about incubators. Um, and then over time, it, it evolved to being an institutional intermediation paper. Really, it's actually a blue state paper uh, around institutional intermediation that actually became really cool. And you know, I learned a lot from it. Um, I know Ronnie has told me he learned a lot from it. Anita has told me she learned a lot from it. Um, I hope that you and Nell and Olga learn something from it. But I, that absolutely. Um, but that process of, of you know, Anita and Ronnie and I knew more than you did at the beginning, but we still had huge gaps in what we knew. So it really was a team. And, and we got to a really cool place. It was, it was definitely a, a learning experience from all the different angles of on, on working on that paper. Through the transition from red to blue, to going through the review process, to uh, just working with you and Anita and Ronnie, it was, and, and my two cohort mates. I think that, that really brought us even closer together. So um, on that note, I think I'll pass it on to Samina who has a couple more questions. All right, I have some fun questions, Will, that I've been asking folks, but I have one serious question before my fun question, which is, is there something you know now that you wish you had known when you were a junior scholar? No, I don't think so. I'm still figuring it out. Okay, good, that gives us all hope. Okay, <laughs> all right, so here are the quick, quick fire questions. Do you have a favorite dessert? Whatever's on the table. Okay. You've probably traveled the world. Do you have a favorite city? Uh, the next one I'm going to. Would you prefer mountains or oceans? Oh, I pick BC. That way I get both. <laughs> Good answer. Do you, when you're not reading scholarly work, do you read fiction or nonfiction? Uh, both actually. Um, um, I just finished most of Margaret Atwood's last book. I read a, bit, a bunch of bad science fiction, a bunch of noir, um, Scandinavian murder mysteries. Um, but um, you know, nonfiction is fun as well. And I can't even imagine how busy you are, but when you want to relax or unwind, what do you do? Oh, we talked about this earlier. Listen, listen, listen to baseball and put up data sets. <laughs> and ride your motorcycle. No? The motorcycle, unfortunately, is in North Carolina right now. And, and if I went, I could get into the U.S. on my U.S. passport, but then I'd have to quarantine for two weeks when I came back to Canada. Oh, thank you so much, Will, for giving us two hours of your time. And on behalf of the division, I want to thank you for making this time. And I'm going to turn it over to Elena for final words. Um, not too many final words other than thank you everybody for uh, for attending and thank you Will for your time not just now but uh, I think as a as, as a member of the of the of the field um, in general I think you're so generous with your time not just with your doctoral students but with all doctoral students and PDWs and all the things that you do um, I think somebody has said you know you you said that 
one of the major constraints that we have is time and you're so even even in those constraints you're so generous with it so thank you so much for your time here and for your time you know in the field yeah and let me let me conclude by thanking those of you from str um the leadership in str samina Sim, elena others um what you're doing is just stunningly valuable um we we have and 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 it's valuable intellectually we learn more and just pragmatically it's valuable in terms of our careers we we have our careers only because we have this field or or we have the, the nature of the field the careers we have is because of this field right some of us probably could have chosen to be economists or some of us could have chosen to be org theorists be hugely different careers we'd study different questions we'd engage with different people we'd use different methods we'd come up with different insights uh, we would teach different things um, in a real sense we would be different people in a meaningful sense and the fact that we've created this field and that you're continuing to to shape this field and grow this field really gives us an identity as who we are um and in a really deep way and i really deeply appreciate the fact that you're doing this work thank you thanks well cool thank you everybody thank you everyone Bye. Have a great rest of the day or evening, um, wherever it is you are. Bye. Enjoy. Stay Bye, safe. Bye, Will. Wear masks. <laughs> Thank you, Elena. Thank you. Bye. Bye.